0: I'm Barbara Buchanan, and this is episode 11 of Tales from Weird Scotland. The stories told in Tales from Weird Scotland relate to the supernatural and may detail dark and distressing events from Scotland's past. For this reason... The podcasts are not recommended for listeners who may find such content upsetting. The Casebook of the Photogenic Fairies. This is a fairy tale, or rather, a tale about some particular fairies and a famous, fascinated Scotsman. The tale begins not once upon a time, but in the year 1917 when the Great War raged across Europe and beyond. In the little town of Cottingley, in the English county of Yorkshire, two girls, Elsie Wright, aged 16, and Frances Griffiths, aged nine, became friends as well as first cousins. Their mothers were sisters. Frances and her parents had just returned from South Africa, with Frances and her mother Annie moving in with the Wrights whilst her father went off to the war. Elsie had lived with her family in Canada for a time. The experience the girls had of travel and living overseas was unusual for Yorkshire lassies at the beginning of the 20th century. Natives of Yorkshire are known for their plain speaking and solid common sense. Yet sightings of fairies and pixies are not uncommon here, particularly in Upper Airedale and Wharfdale. These nature spirits are considered as working in and for the benefit of their environment. Frances delighted in the lush green of the English spring. She loved being outdoors and would spend as much time as she could by the beck, the stream which ran through a deep pass at the foot of the garden. The beck was surrounded by grasses, bushes and traditional fairy trees of oak, ash and thorn which encourage insects and dragonflies. She would later say her first encounter with nature spirits or the fairy world was the sighting of an elf near the beck when she was alone. Elsie, despite having left school and having a job, would join her outings when she could. They would spend the whole day by the beck, taking a picnic with them. Frances would be scolded and slapped by her mother when she returned home with her pinafer, black woolly stockings and expensive shiny shoes, wet and muddy. When her mother asked why she had to play by the beck, finally Frances blurted out that it was to see the fairies. When she said that Elsie had seen them too, Elsie agreed, getting Frances off the hook. Arthur Wright, Elsie's father, had recently acquired a midge camera which he was learning to use. The camera operated by a system of sliding glass plates. After much persuasion, her father lent her the camera to take a photograph, the first Elsie had ever taken. It was a hot and sunny July day. Perfect fairy weather. Later that day, Arthur developed the plate in his dark room with Elsie at his side and Francis loitering outside the door. As images of fairies dancing in front of Francis appeared, Elsie cried out, The fairies are on the plate! On the other side of the door, Francis squealed and skipped. Arthur immediately smelled a rat saying, You've been up to summit. He thought it was a joke. Cut out fairies, possibly he knew his daughter's artistic talents and that she had drawn theories for years. The two mothers were puzzled, believing the girls to be generally truthful. And they were beginning to take an interest in theosophy, a new and increasingly popular discipline focusing on nature spirits and a life beyond this one. The excitement quickly abated and it was not until September that the camera was borrowed again. This time, Francis was the photographer, and the developed plate showed Elsie with a winged gnome. Arthur thought it was a prank, and refused to lend the girls the camera a third time. Elsie's mother, Polly, believed the photographs to be genuine. Two years later, Polly and Annie attended a theosophical lecture in nearby Bradford on fairy life. Polly told the speaker about the photographs. This encounter led to these being exhibited at the Theosophical Society's annual conference in Harrogate. Even then the photographs may have remained a curiosity within a small circle had they not come to the attention of the Scotsman mentioned earlier, one of the most famous men of his time. Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle was born in Edinburgh in 1859 the first son of the large family born to Charles Altamont Doyle and Mary Doyle. They were of Irish origin and Arthur was raised in their Roman Catholic faith. Charles worked as a designer and draftsman for the clerk of works in Edinburgh. He slowly descended into depression and alcoholism, which culminated in his death in an asylum in Dumfriesshire. Mary Doyle was the family matriarch and persuaded her husband's wealthy London relatives to pay for Arthur to attend Stonyhurst College, a strict Jesuit boarding school in Lancashire. An unhappy but bright pupil, here he began his lifelong enthusiasm for sport. Arthur returned to Edinburgh in 1879 to study medicine at the university. Dr Joseph Bell, one of the finest physicians of his day, chose Arthur to be his outpatient clerk. Bell's shrewd observations of his patients would inspire the characteristics of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur's fictional detective, who appeared in four novels and 56 short stories, which remain hugely popular today. The Sherlock Holmes stories were regularly published in the Strand magazine and made Arthur wealthy, influential and a household name. In many ways, Arthur was an archetypal Victorian man, In addition to his writing, he served twice as a ship surgeon before beginning medical practice in South Sea, Portsmouth. Here he married his first wife, Louisa, with whom he had two children. He volunteered as a doctor in the Boer War in South Africa in 1900, which led to his receiving a knighthood. He stood unsuccessfully for Parliament twice, used his influence in two famous criminal cases where there had been miscarriages of justice, and was influential in the setting up of the Court of Criminal Appeal. And in the Great War, he organised a civilian battalion of over 100 volunteers. After his first wife's death, Arthur married Jean Leckie and together they had three children. He participated in sports from cricket to skiing, which he helped to popularise in Britain, and was one of the judges in the world's first bodybuilding championships. He enjoyed overseas travel, hot air ballooning, flying and driving. Topically, to our 21st century thinking, he advocated the building of a channel tunnel and believed in compulsory vaccination against disease. But his fascination with all matters relating to the supernatural, spiritualism and the paranormal, and an innate sense of some greater power in the universe left him open to adverse comments and ridicule from some quarters It was these interests which led him to the Cottingley fairy tale. In 1887, he participated in his first séance with his wife and friends. They had little idea of how to conduct a séance, so used the instructions given in Light, the journal of the recently formed London Spiritual Alliance. He was also intrigued by the precepts of theosophy and became a Freemason. Freemasonry traditionally had a store of occult knowledge which was of interest to him. He even refused to believe his friend, the illusionist Harry Houdini, when he explained his tricks were just that. Arthur was convinced there was more to it than stage magic. Spiritualism became the focus of his later years. Like many others, during the Great War, Arthur suffered terrible loss. His son, his brother, his two brothers-in-law and his two nephews had died. Arthur regarded spiritualism as a science and was not without some scepticism. The Strand magazine commissioned him to write an article on fairies for its 1920 Christmas edition. Arthur heard of the fairy photographs and sought them out to illustrate the piece. Sceptical to begin with, he believed the photographs would be epoch-making if they could be proved genuine. As he was departing for Australia on a spiritual mission, he left it to Edward Gardiner, the respected president of the Blavatsky Lodge of the Theosophical Society in London, to investigate further. Gardiner would become Watson to Arthur's Holmes. Gardiner visited Cottingley, where he interviewed the Wrights. He walked with Elsie by the beck and was photographed there, but came across no nature spirits Elsie had already told a friend that the fairies wouldn't come near her friend in a hundred years. Frances would later explain how she encouraged or ticed the fairies by sitting very quietly until they began to rustle the foliage before welcoming them towards her. Gardner returned to London convinced the photographs were genuine. The original plates and photographs were examined by experts who saw no evidence of tampering. On a second visit, good quality cameras were given to the girls and in August, three more fairy photographs were taken. Two featured Elsie with a gnome and a fairy, but the third was a more abstract image of what became known as the fairy sunbath. Gardner explained sunbaths, woven and used by fairies after dull weather, had been seen before in Scotland and the New Forest. The three new photographs cemented Gardner's belief He immediately telegraphed Arthur in Australia, who replied he was gladdened and felt this might lead to other psychic phenomena becoming more readily accepted. The Christmas edition of the Strand magazine sold out in days. The first two photographs, retouched and clearer than the original plates, were used and the girls were given pseudonyms to protect their privacy. Arthur wrote that he left it to the public to make its own judgement. The last three photographs had convinced him beyond doubt. He rarely depended on judgment other than his own, but in this matter had relied heavily on Gardner's views. He wrote a second article and a book, The Coming of the Fairies, published in 1922. His own children came to have seen fairies and he, like Polly Wright with Elsie, believed them to be truthful stated view was that nature spirits were really life forms which have developed along some separate line of evolution. Despite ongoing criticism, Arthur remained sure the photographs were genuine right up to his death in 1930. In 1947, Gardner published his own book, A Book of Real Fairies. The true identity of the girls was quickly discovered and newspaper reports added to the debate Elsie was reticent when interviewed, and her father said he was fed up with it all. Every few years, the tale would resurface. In newspaper and television reports, a television documentary, further books, and 80 years after the event, a feature film was produced, entitled Fairy Tale – A True Story. Elsie and Frances went on to live long, full lives. In the early 1980s, they finally admitted to the hoax, a joke which had gone too far. The fairy folk were copied by Elsie from images in Princess Mary's gift book, which Frances had brought with her from South Africa and secured in place for the photographs with hat pins. As Elsie said, two village kids and a brilliant man like Conan Doyle, well, we could only keep quiet. Without his intervention, the Cottingley fairy tale might have been long forgotten. Curiously, Frances always maintained the final photograph of the fairy sunbath was genuine. So there may be some truth in the sighting she reported, so similar to those recounted by others and included in Arthur's book. The fascination for the photographs Arthur shared with the public 100 years ago still lives on. So much so that when the first two plates were auctioned in 2018, they sold for over 20,000 pounds. Unbelievable? Maybe, but it certainly is a fairy tale ending. That was Barbara Buchanan. This episode was written by Barbara Buchanan. It was recorded, produced, and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. For more weirdness, find us on Twitter as Tales from Weird Scotland Podcast or at Tales Weird. Weird spelt W Y R D. This is a You Better Run Media production. Join us again soon for more Tales from Weird Scotland.